0: This is Beth Bruno, and you're listening to The Fierce and Lovely Podcast. On this podcast, I amplify the feminine voice and curate feminine glory so that you, my listener, find your own fierce and lovely story. It has become somewhat of a sacred journey for me to uncover the stories of women from around the world throughout time and present day. The more fierce and lovely women I explore, the more I fall in love with the one in whose image we reflect. My hope is that in this space, you embrace your own beautifully ordinary life as the majority story most of us are living. Welcome to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast, where I have the privilege of meeting women and hearing their stories and getting inspired and then bringing that to you. Today's guest is amazing. She and I were connected by writing for Red Tent Living, an online space you've heard me talk about a lot. I was so excited to get to know her better, but I had no idea what she has been up to I'm going to let her tell you all about herself, but suffice it to say, this is one smart leader. Her name is Elisa cortez Vast, and here's our conversation. Hi, Elisa. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I would just love to hear more about you. Let's start off there, where you are and uh, what occupies your days, what what occupies your heart? What space do you find yourself in? Tell us a little bit about yourself. So I live in the
1: great state of Michigan, um, but I am Puerto Rican um, by birth. And so uh, we're kind of um, this multiracial family that's on life together. Um, so I'm married uh, to a mostly Irishman. So we tell people we, um, we love hard and we fight hard, not very often, um, but it's this beautiful mix of just kind of um, passion and steadiness. Um, in our marriage. And we are the proud parents of two sons, um, Roman Edward and Judah Raphael, um, who are probably equally split between the two of us in temperament.
0: No, I I love it. That's a great description. (laughs) (laughs) It's, you know, it's
1: that moment when you realize, oh my gosh, I thought this would never come back to haunt me. And now I can't call my mom because she knows (laughs) she was praying for this. Um, And, you know, what occupies my days is I have the privilege of working as a denominational executive. So it's a it's a high-profile position, but I help churches um, coordinate their outreach efforts and develop deeper listening patterns to what is breaking the heart of God and what's breaking the heart of their community and how to find places where the two of those things meet. Um, and additionally, I tell people I, I champion their missional imagination. Um, what can we not see that is possible? What can we do that we haven't considered yet? And what needs to be resurrected and given new life and new wings uh, that people can get behind and feel empowered by. And so I'm so grateful that those are the things I get to live into almost every day and find new places and new ways uh, for people to engage with me.
0: Uh, wow. That like, there we go. We're going to be talking about some crazy, cool things that you get to do, yes. but you're also a student, which as yes. another layer, I think of complexity to your life. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: So um, I had decided um, about a year and a half ago that I would like to continue my work. Um, one of the things that has always been um, a passion for our family is education. And I knew when I started college back in my freshman year that I would like to become a doctor one day, but I wasn't sure a doctor of what. And um, I just found a passion around helping organizations be sustainable. And so creating new patterns and new ways of thinking um, around what it means to be um vital and sustainable and how we organize people, how we empower giftedness. And so I am currently midway through a doctoral program that focuses on organizational leadership.
0: Hmm. And where are you in your program? Are you at the point where you're doing kind of your own research?
1: I'm getting close. I'm so close. Um, I committed to saying it's going to be a three-year process. And um, especially for my temperament, you know, my my advisor's like, listen, sometimes it takes people five years. And I'm like, you said three. And he's like, yeah, but sometimes five. And I said, so three. <laughs> so I am burning the candle at both ends because I'm like, I'm telling you, I think this will be done in three.
0: Ah, uh, you're hilarious. <laughs> I, I think I would kind of be the same way, though. Yes. So can you share with us what your topic is going, what you think your dissertation will be on? Or is that like top secret?
1: No, not at all. Um, So one of the things that I find in my work with churches is that we have um, people who graduate out of formal theological education, and um, I love that they get the richness of studying the scriptures, um, but I find that there's a space or a gap between understanding how to lead um, and to lead well and and to be an adaptive leader and to help lead congregations through change. And so my heart has just broken when I've seen people graduate um, from a seminary experience and go straight maybe into a small church or a church that is struggling Um, And then feel like they're floundering or feel like they're alone or maybe they're not as equipped as they could have been. And so my hope is to identify where the gap is in strengthening those leadership capacities. So when they step into a church, um, you know, they're defined and connected. Um, They can understand how change management works. They know how to support and listen to their congregation in ways that are meaningful. Um, And so that's what I hope my um, work will reflect on and be a resource for in the church.
0: I can totally see that, how seminaries are, you know, full of people with a calling to just do ministry and care for and love people and maybe have not fully uh, recognized or or had to live through the reality that leading a church means needing to be a leader and have those skills, needing to know business and, you know, basically running a small business and needing those skills as well. And They're not always graduating with all of those skills to do the job. They have the heart. Yeah. Yes. And church is so hard. And so, you know, it breaks my heart when I see people
1: um, be so full of optimism and excitement and they come into a faith community and, you know, there's dysfunction or disorganization and their dreams just feel crushed in that moment. And that feeling of helplessness or that feeling of, you know, I didn't expect this, you know, I look at that and I go, Is there any way that we can mitigate that on the front end? So leaders feel so healthy. So even when they feel like they're about to get stepped on, um, they say, I know how to respond.
0: Hmm. Mm. Well, it sounds like you have a laboratory in your actual job, your day job, and what you're doing for your denomination. You threw out some phrases that were really captivating to me. I would love to hear more about what, what that looks like. First, you said something about listening patterns. Yes. And help, wanting so, tell go dive into that. That sounded really interesting.
1: Sure. So, um, especially in community um, development work, or you know, just when churches are trying to discern, you know, what is happening in their community and how to respond, um, it's been the pattern where I've seen where churches will immediately start doing something and say, you know, and then they're frustrated because you know volunteers are burned out or the community's not responding. And they're like, "Oh, it's a failure." And so they forget that the same thing that happens in, in our human relationships one-on-one are the same dynamics in a community, um, that you need to sit down and ask, what do you need? You know, where, what keeps you up at night? Well, what do you think keeps your neighbor up at night? And to keep asking those questions and then to not let the program become so big or the process become so big that it loses its agility. So when you start hearing something else, that you can say, okay, we need to pivot, guys. You know, this is what's happening. And so it's it's not so much being reactive, but being responsive. And to keep to keep staying connected, what what are you saying? What is still keeping you up at night? Where have we grown? Uh, where have we missed it? You know, and what do we need to do differently?
0: Mm-hmm. So, can you give me an example of uh, a faith community that has really done that so well and so beautifully that you would you know you just want to brag about for a minute?
1: Oh well, I had the privilege of um, helping to open a community center um, now almost uh, six years ago, and. As awkward as it was, they actually did like the survey focus group door to door work of saying, what do you really want? And they left the canvas so open um, that the community responded in ways that surprised them. Um, you know, they kind of made an assumption, especially in this middle class community, that people were just kind of bored with church and weren't interested and they wanted to learn about church. They just didn't want to go into a church. They wanted to learn about the like, Bible, and they wanted to learn about how to have interfaith dialogue. They just didn't think the church could provide that for them and didn't feel like the church was a safe place. And so they stayed very um, um, open and sensitive um, without taking things personally. And so when they opened, they said, OK, we have a wide canvas. And so what, what do we need to do? And so we got to set up a community board. Um, And they kind of drove the programming for the first three years um, to be just responsive to those very particular things the community asked for. And it was so wonderful.
0: Were some of the community members a part of that board as well?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we still needed people that could champion, you know, every every organization has a tendency to lean back into its old patterns and, and what's easiest or most convenient. And especially when pinches hit like a recession or you know you're having budget conversations um it's easy to scale back on the things that you might feel are the most important and so having different voices at the table you know is always like that marker in the sand that says we're still here and this is what matters to us most and if we're here then then here's what we need for you to hear
0: well on the flip side have you seen a situation where it was just a really big fail and i'm sure ended up being a learning a learning opportunity but a big fail Oh,
1: gosh, yes. I think I probably learned more from the failures. I'm, I'm a natural optimist. Um, my old boss said I could look at a closet and see opportunity. And it's true. Um, and so I had went into a project in a large urban setting, and I called um, a couple different denominations together and the churches together because all of them had, had said somewhere that they had some, um, some unctioning or some need to reconnect with the community so I said, well, of course, everybody's going to connect around mission. You know, we care about our neighbors and we care about loving one another. And I didn't know that there was a long history. I didn't do my research. And so when I, when I rang the bell for everyone to come, they came and the room was off. You know, like when you're in a room and you could tell like, oh my gosh, something, I don't know something that is here in this room. Yes. Oh, yeah, yes. I can't see. Yes. yes. <laughs> so, and, um, and it was bitter. I mean, it, we went nowhere. Like the, the energy in the room was low. The spirit in the room was bad. And I just remember getting in my car and, and like starting to tear up because I was like, I failed, but I don't even know what I failed at. Something failed. And, um, you know, I, so I started doing the phone calls and saying, I'm sorry, I didn't listen before we came in this room. Can you tell me what happened? Why did the room feel this way? You know? And I had, I had people yelling at me and screaming and it was just screaming out of their own frustration and their own grief and their own anger. Um, and, but that was a big learning for me. And I said, you know,
0: Never again. Wow, doing the research, doing finding out what you're walking into, a little bit of the history of a place and a, a story that the community holds so important.
1: Yeah, oh,
0: love that. Okay, another phrase that you threw out there in the beginning was helping um, with missional imagination. Yes. Ah, yes. that's so intriguing. <laughs> Tell me more about that. So. You know, I think,
1: I think we're programmed somewhere along the way, um, and I know it's probably true for most adults, but especially for people who worked in church for a while, we try something, it, it's rocky or bumpy, and we're like, okay, we're just going to abandon this. Like, this was, this was bad. Um, or we've done something for so long that we don't ever have, like, the courage to kill it and give it a dignified burial because we're like, well, I just don't know what's next. And so I love to come into spaces and say, you know, um, can this be imagined a different way? Um, who's not at the table that has ideas? Um, you know, what if we just pushed out, you know, one step to the left and one step to the right? Who could we invite that would never come if we just kept it so narrow? And some of the ideas that I've seen have been so fun. Um, you know, with, with things that people already have in their hand, and you just have to give them permission to play. You have to give them permission to say, okay, well, let's just put everything on the table. You know, what would be fun? What would be life-giving for the people sitting in your pews? What would be life-giving for your congregation? And um, and so we've learned, we you know through the process, you have to be able to for things that have a long history, that you celebrate it well and you give it a dignified burial. And for the things that are new, you give it enough time and enough resources um, to really fly.
0: So tell me some of the crazy ideas that have come from this imagination.
1: Oh my goodness! I was with a church in um, upstate New York, and and they're like, you know, we're an older congregation, and we just don't know if we have really anything to offer. And I said, okay, I said, well, t- tell me, just tell me about your building. Tell me what happens, who, you know, who comes in, what are the rhythms of your community? And they identified that they had this um, long path that was open all summer and it went all the way through like upstate New York, beautiful, beautiful. And they were like, oh yeah, we have, I don't know, like, you know, a couple thousand people come through every summer. And I was like, wait, I'm sorry. What did you say? And they're like, oh yeah, the, the bike path cuts through our property. And so we open up our, our church and they use like our bathrooms and, you know, just things like that. And I was like, Oh my gosh! Do you have hospitality people in your church, like people who just—that's their thing—and they're like, Oh yeah, of course. And so this summer, they sent me this nice little note, and it was—I loved it. It was like on this grandma card, you know, with like the roses yeah. and flowers. And they're like, um, Thank you so much for helping us. We just started giving out water bottles and had people greeting and did music. And I'm like, Yes! And so for them, it was life-giving because it was part of the natural rhythm of their community, and it was just something they hadn't seen that they could participate in.
0: I love that. tell me another one. I love these stories. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I'm trying
1: to think there's, um, honestly, I have the privilege of, of seeing so much. We have, um, a church that's in New Mexico. that felt like they wanted to respond to the immigration crisis and some of the things that were happening on the border. And they're small. They're very small. The church is like 80 people. And, and they said, you know, we're, we're new. We're not even native English speakers. We don't know how helpful we can be. And I went and visited them earlier this year and they had converted um, almost all their extra space in their building towards like having a clothing closet. And so even when people were just getting dropped off in the middle of the city, they were just going and driving in and grabbing them and saying, um, I know you don't have family right here in the city and you're waiting on family. We're going to be family to you. And so we got to watch as they just like welcomed people in. And, and as they were on their way to you know, whoever their host family was um, in the United States for two to three days, they just participated as family. And they talked about how people were opening their homes and they were learning to cook all these native dishes because they knew that they could open their home for just two or three nights. It's not a big deal. Um, And just seeing how people could participate in ways and be part of a larger narrative of, you know, these restoring movements of people who are... Coming and resettling in the United States was just beautiful, just
0: gorgeous. So what are some recommendations that you have? I know I have a lot of listeners who are involved in ministry, some form of church leadership, church planting, living overseas even. And some of them are probably nailing this. They they get community Uh, asset building. They know how to identify gaps and needs in a community, but some this might be a little newer. They might be starting new ministries full of vision and passion and ideas and maybe haven't done a whole lot of groundwork or or recon of the story that they're joining. What are some things that you would advise for those folks?
1: I would say to set tables. Um, Have people come and just talk to you. Listen well. Um, Find the themes that are reemerging over and over. Um, Invite people. I had one um, dear, dear friend, one of my best friends in the world. And for the longest, she was just labeled a dream killer because (laughs) she was so detail oriented. And so nobody wanted her at the brainstorming table. And when I realized what her strengths were, I said, wait a minute, you know, you can help. You just need to know where the plan is. And so Reinviting her back to the table and saying, okay, here's what, here's what we're envisioning. What do we need to do? And giving her space to process that, uh, we were able to partner together in ways that were way more dynamic. And so instead of being afraid to have people that are going to challenge and push back, set a very large table, help me understand. And then as you start refining, um, you know, and you take it to prayer, then you just start marching narrower and narrower and saying, God, you know, who are the men and women that need to be on my left and right hand side to make this happen? Uh, and then just be passionate about sharing it wherever you go over and over and over and over again.
0: You really have to be a vision caster to, yes. to lead in those spaces. Yeah. Yes. Well, you are also, so in this role, you're also a pastor. You, you do a lot of preaching at, at some of these churches you visit. Am I understanding that correctly? And you're going to be teaching at uh, the Brave On conference with Red Tent Living. And I would love for you to give us a little bit of kind of the story that you've chosen to, or the woman that you've chosen to teach about and a little bit of, of what you've discovered in her story. Oh,
1: so when the organizers contacted me, I said, you know, can, can I choose whoever I want? And they said, sure. And I had just preached very briefly um, at a local church on the story of Rahab. And I, lo- I've come to love her. She's one of my favorite women in the Bible now. And I hate that up until like, you know, with the exception, maybe once she's referred to as Rahab, the prostitute, you know, it's like the yeah. label she couldn't shake.
0: Oh yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs>
1: It's like when people wonder, you know, is my past always going to follow me? Sometimes it does, but that's okay. Um, and as I think about her story, it's, uh, we tend to finish her story um, when the book of Joshua ends, you know, like she helps, you know, she helps get the spies through the walls come down and she kind of like migrates into the larger body of Israelites. And then she's gone. She's gone until we find her in the lineage in Matthew 1. And I, I just want to put the pause on that and say, actually, we find her in the book of Ruth. And so it took some time for me to just slow down and dig through to realize that Rahab is Boaz's mom. And so when we see Boaz as a godly man responding to, to Ruth and um, responding to somebody in a marginalized community, You know, as a Latin American mother, I think about the ways that I talk to my boys, you know, like, I know you're not going to do that. Don't you dare. And I just imagine Rahab just being at the table saying, son, don't you dare take advantage of that. girl. We don't do that in this house. That's not what your dad did. And that's not what we do. And so I love that, especially as you know, when when things like the Me Too movement and things like that were being unearthed, it broke my heart to hear um, some of my millennial colleagues say, oh, I hope I don't have boys. You know, that I hope my baby doesn't turn out to be a boy. I would hate for him to be this kind of person. And I look at Rahab as a picture of such an, a great mother that she could take her own experience and how she was welcomed in the community and how um, she responded with bravery and courage and to, to also dial that down into a generational legacy of recognizing marginalized people and leveraging your power to lift and elevate the voices of people who are on the fringes. And so I love that she shows back up in Matthew. And I love that she shows up in Hebrews 11 in this hall of heroes, because I think she not only cared about the family that was around her in the moment when the walls came down, but she cared about the family that came after her.
0: And that to me is like this beautiful act in two parts. Oh my goodness. That is so true. We tend to just forget. I mean, we just don't notice her after Joshua. And wow, that's really interesting to think about um, um, being a marginalized mother for, yes. for, in the context of that. Talk a little bit more about about that, and you seem very still very connected to your Puerto Rican culture. Um, yes. t- tell me a little bit about how some of these stories sit differently with uh with your Latina sisters or um versus maybe some of the other majority cultures that you're speaking to, like just talk to me a little bit about how race comes into play as we read scripture.
1: Oh, what a great question, Beth. I think, um, I think it's easy uh, for voices of color to just quickly become fatigued. And it's, it's almost a space where you just want to like throw your hands up in the air and say, I don't know if this is even going to work or if this is making any kind of impact. And so when I read um, stories like Rahab, on the days when I'm my most tired, Um, I think about not just the impact that I have and like the story that's happening right in front of me, but I think about um, what's coming behind me. And so um, it allows me to just be able to to, on my days where I'm the most weary to say, you know, if God, if you would just help me broaden my shoulders a little bit. So whoever stands on them next, it's not about me, but it's about what what they're doing and where where they're leading and I can prop them up um, that I've done some of my work and that's okay. And so when we, when I see voices like that of people, and then, you know, I may always be in the room as Elisa the Puerto Rican, just like Rahab was always in the room as Rahab the prostitute. And that can mean something glorious and beautiful and wonderful um, forever and have an impacting legacy forever. Um, And so I trust God in that. um, But at the same time, I thank God for stories like Rahab, because those are the stories that keep me going when I'm wondering, where am I in the story? Where am I in the larger narrative?
0: So to find yourself in scripture is just, it's hopeful. It's affirming. Yes. yes. It's
1: empowering. It's
0: empowering. Do you find among Latinas today that there's a, a bit of a divide, a different approach to how to handle? Like you're speaking with such hope and grace sure, and um, hope for what you're, like what you said, standing on my shoulders and looking looking behind in the sense of who's following. So in some ways, I, I see that as looking ahead, looking to the future. But would mm-hmm. you say that there's some different voices out there that are causing some conflict or just not conflict, but just different approaches? Get- sure.
1: Yep. I would say, you know, it's so hard. Um, we mentor a lot of young people and, you know, we're in a cult, uh, culture of protest. And so it's very hard to feel hopeful uh, when there's so much outrage and, it's, and it's, it's righteous outrage in a lot of places. And so I would say um, in a Latin community, it feels like we tend to center ourselves around what is true. Like, so we find the anchor points. And so I would say for the Latino communities, especially that I'm a part of, um, we tend to center on the scripture and say, okay, the, the rest of the world is chaotic in this. And we're going to very firmly center on what we know to be true about us, that our wildness and our passion and our truth telling are embedded in what God says about us. And, and that's unshakable. The hard part I would say is that, um, is, is the more that we have like anger with no action and, and no place for expression, you know, it hurts my heart to see my Latina sisters fatigued in the same ways that I am. And they're not anchored in anything else, but their anger. Um, and so it's, it's difficult in it. It's a dance because, you know, especially as, you know, the Latino community, the Latino and Latina community is so wide and vast. And so the experiences are so um, spread out. You know, my, my experience is not the same as somebody from Nicaragua or Mexico, and so, um, you know, just even gathering those voices for healing and hope is very difficult, and I wish there was a mechanism to do that. Maybe that's what's next.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I recently read um, the the new book Hermanas. Have you read that? Yes. So good. Yes, and I was able to interview uh, Natalia, which was just beautiful. Oh. She is a, just a oh, such an intelligent, beautiful woman. So mm-hmm. I I know that that was a resource. Particularly, just to offer to to the community, just that this is how a group of Latina women read scripture and find stories like Rahab, um, and it it impacts them differently. But are there other resources that you would point to? Other um, and both in this space, but also in the community development space that we were talking about earlier, just some some great books that are your favorite, that you always recommend, that, that perhaps some of my listeners might grab. Sure. Um,
1: you know, it's hard because there's not a, a lot of literature, I would say, from a Latino perspective. And so um, Hermanas is a great book. Um, and there's also um, a book about Evangelicas uh, with Elizabeth Conde-Fraser. Um, And so she's wonderful to follow. Joanne Solis Walker, the Camino Road. um, And she has a social media presence online. Um, But a very simple tutorial would be The Forgotten Ways by Alan Hirsch. Um, It's very practical, hands-on about how to live missionally in your communities. And it's wonderful.
0: The Forgotten Way? The The Forgotten Ways. By Alan Hirsch. Okay. Well, I will put those recommendations in the show notes for sure. Elise, is there anywhere else that people can connect with you online? I know you're writing for Red Tent Living. Are you writing in other spaces or are there other places where people can connect with you? Sure. The easiest way um, to
1: find me right now is on Instagram, um, but I'll also be releasing my website um, later this year.
0: Okay. Great. Well, I'll put that in the show notes as well. It's been so fun to talk with you and to get to know you a little bit better. Thanks for sharing your stories and thanks for doing the work that you do. Thank you for having me. It's a blessing. And good luck on your PhD. Thank you. (laughs) Elisa gave us so many things to ruminate on. I am really going to be relooking at the story of rehab and thinking through what that what that implies, that Boaz was this godly man and therefore who was his mother. I love that perspective. I love the phrases that we talked about, listening patterns and missional imagination. I think wherever we are, whether we're leading in ministry context or not, those are just incredible um, lenses through which to view our communities and our schools and our places of work. I just think, what would it be like if we brought more people to the table, if our tables were larger? I I love that. I love all that she's about and all that she offers. Please check out the show notes if you want any of those resources or to connect with her on Instagram. I hope you've enjoyed the show. This is Beth Bruno, and you've been listening to The Fierce and Lovely Podcast.